Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Paul Moneys covers state agencies and politics for Oklahoma Watch and joins us to wrap up the legislature's regular session, which ended last week. Uh, Paul, give us a recap of uh, the last week of the session and what lawmakers did and didn't get done. Yeah, so lawmakers finished Friday uh, in a regular session uh, as they were supposed to do, uh, but they also also had a concurrent special session that kind of finished up some of the budget stuff that got delayed a little bit. Uh, In the end, they did pass a a $12.9 billion appropriations bill. Uh, There's other spending that goes along with that outside of that uh, chunk of money. But their main focus this session was definitely on education funding, including teacher pay, uh, extra money for schools and school security. And of course, they passed a a pretty big uh, private school tax credit as well. Um, they also did some stuff on kind of long-term projects. They um, earmarked about $600 million in what they call the Legacy Capital Financing um, Fund. And they immediately spent about $300 million on that and kind of longer-term capital projects that would have been funded by bond issuances. Now, there's also a special session that's ongoing, right? That's right. Yeah. They, in the last couple of weeks of session, they called a concurrent special section, session, which is now still ongoing. They took care of some budget stuff in that um, last week, and they're kind of keeping that going just in case there's some possible vetoes uh, by Kevin Stitt of the budget. Um, now, Stitt has until Thursday to sign the budget bills this week, and he has until June 10th to uh, sign the other bills that were passed in the past week. Uh, and then earmark, uh, lawmakers have kind of earmarked June 12th as kind of a day to come back in special session for any possible uh, veto overrides. All right. Now, uh, Governor Kevin Stitt uh, called this a historic session, but he said there's still unfinished business, right? That's right. Yeah. He said that because of the education funding, in fact, there was more than $625 million in extra recurring funding for education in this session. So he called that historic since uh, probably the, the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, but also, he, he continued his frustration about not passing any broader-based uh, tax cuts. Uh, in fact, we he, he really hammered on that again uh, last week, said he's still looking for a quarter percent point uh, reduction in income tax across the board, and also still waiting on possible uh, relief for the state's share of the grocery tax. Now, the holdup there has been the Senate all along, and you might remember last year, Stitt did the same thing at the end of session. He called a special session for tax cuts, and that didn't really go anywhere. Did the budget for the upcoming fiscal year have tax cuts? It did, but they were pretty targeted. I've already mentioned the the kind of large um, private school tax credit. That's going to be about $150 million in the first year, rising up to $250 million uh, by the third year. Uh, They also eliminated the franchise tax for businesses, uh, which is a good chunk of money for that uh, revenue source as well. And then they made some kind of stuff around the edges. They eliminated what's called the uh, marriage penalty tax, which kind of in certain filers – um, basically penalized married couples if they filed together rather than uh, single filers. Now, uh, Governor Stitt used his veto pen a lot this year. Uh, remind us how lawmakers have responded so far. 
Yeah, so he he used that quite a bit this year. He he uh, more than forty six bills were vetoed by Stitt across the session. Um, now twenty of those came on a single day in April, when the House and Senate were fighting on education funding package, and that was kind of more uh, as a, a reaction to that that impasse between the House and Senate. In fact, uh, senators called that the tantrum twenty uh, for those vetoes, and they were in policy bills as well as some stuff that that kind of uh, people weren't surprised about. So lawmakers did in the end uh, override nineteen of those vetoes in the last couple of days of session last week, including one to reauthorize, reauthorize sorry, the uh, Oklahoma Educational Television Authority, the state's public television station, uh, also one that allows um, tribal regalia to be worn by Native American students at graduations. And there was also one that um, was looked for by a lot of college recruitment stuff for the national, uh, sorry, for the um, name, image, and likeness uh, perks for college athletes that are allowed to do now. Uh, he, that was one of the vetoed bill that was overridden by the legislature too. Now, uh, the Democrats are in a, uh, I guess, a super minority, all right? Uh, what are they saying about this year's legislative session? That's right. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, they were not super happy about some of the, the targeted tax cuts and the private school tax uh, credits. Um, they were, you know, they did vote for the educational funding increases. So they were happy about that part. But they continued to harp on the lack of transparency and the late in the game kind of uh, budget deal that kind of came together in the last week. And in fact, it, it wasn't until the, the second or third last day of session that we saw a finished budget document uh, come out and kind of that, that thing uh, really kind of come into focus for a lot of folks. So the Democrats were Continued to, to uh, say that that process was not open and transparent and there was not a lot of time for the general public to weigh in on these budget priorities. Uh, now, they do also, like I said, like the teacher pay increases. Uh, there was also a couple of policy items they did like as well, including maternity leave for state employees and maternity leave for, for teachers as well. Now, uh, once that special session ends, uh, what, what kinds of things do you expect to be following during the interim? Yeah, so we're going to keep, uh, obviously, a close eye on the economy. Uh, oil and gas prices are obviously key to state revenues, uh, although, in fact, because of the stronger uh, gas prices from last year, uh, we're expecting to close the books on the fiscal year 2023 with more than a billion dollars extra in revenue than in what they expected. And so that would be something to watch for when, in terms of uh, next year's session, how much they want to allocate that to either savings or spending. And then, of course, we're continuing to follow uh, the ongoing spending from the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The state got $1.8 billion of that. A lot of that has yet to be spent. It's all being allocated at this point, but there's a huge chunk of money that's going through water and sewer project projects, and then a lot from the Broadband Council, too. So there's going to be a lot of stuff to, to track on that front. And then other than that, we're going to look, um, obviously, for some uh, continuing revelations, possibly from some uh, possible scandals that came up in the last couple of years, including the, the Swadley's barbecue thing uh, that the OSBI is investigating. Uh, there's obviously the ongoing uh, criminal case for the Epic uh, Charter School founders. And there's still some ongoing investigations having to do with the commissioners and land office that came up last summer. So we'll look for that in the room as well. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read all of Paul's coverage of the special session and then the interim at our website, oklahomawatch.org. Whitney Bryan uh, covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch, and she is here to provide an update on a statewide nonprofit that squandered or misspent hundreds of thousands of public dollars meant to help Oklahoma abuse victims. Whitney, remind us about your investigation that revealed that misspending. What did you find? 
Well, federal auditors discovered that the former executive director of the Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault misspent nearly $900,000 in federal money. So that's federal, you know, taxpayer dollars that they misspent. Some of that money was spent on vacations. So in one instance, she used the money for flights and a hotel to um, Southern California, where she said she was attending a conference, but she skipped the conference and instead went wine tasting in Temecula. That was about a third of the money spent on vacations and things like that. The rest of the misspending was based around a lot of missing paperwork, you know, things like uh, missing receipts and invoices, employee timesheets, all of those things are required when you're using federal grant money. Now, what's been happening with that nonprofit since your investigation? Well, the board of directors fired Mannion, who was the director when all of this happened, and most of the other employees who were there at that time also left. They have brought on new board members as well. So now the nonprofit staff and board are completely new. No one was there when the misspending took place. Uh, Those folks have been working with the feds who are investigating the auditor's findings. So they have regular meetings and have been trying to dig up as much documentation as possible to sort of salvage some of those old expenses, you know, looking for those receipts and invoices. Otherwise, the nonprofit has kind of been going about their normal business. They're providing trainings and lobbying at the Capitol, assisting shelters and crisis centers around the state and applying for new grants. Uh, Those grants make up about 90 percent of the nonprofit's budget. And are federal agencies continuing to provide grant money to that organization? They are, yes. So since the audit findings came out in June of 2021, so about two years ago, federal agencies have awarded the nonprofit another $2 million in grant money. Now, you recently attended one of their board meetings. What did you learn there? Well, after about two years of working with the feds, um, the Office on Violence Against Women specifically, uh, that's who provided the grant money that was misspent. The amount that the nonprofit misspent has been whittled down from that original 900000 to about 585000 Basically, the nonprofit was able to dig up some invoices, receipts, timesheets, you know, other paperwork that shows where some of that money had gone. And so those uh, those dollars were then approved by the feds. So that's how that that amount became five hundred and eighty five thousand dollars. Now, at the board meeting, they did say if they end up having to repay that money that the nonprofit would have to dissolve They don't have that kind of money, so shutting down would really be the only option. If that uh, organization were to shut down, what would that mean for Oklahoma abuse victims? Well, the nonprofit trains advocates who work with abuse victims at domestic violence shelters, at crisis centers where sexual assault victims can go, um, and that's across the state. So, So the training would go away. It also provides funding to shelters Um, And those crisis centers, technical assistance, it advises uh, directors of those centers. It also connects all 40 of the state's shelters. So if one is full, for instance, the coalition can help track down an open bed. That really speeds up the process for finding victims a safe place to sleep. 
And then, of course, the coalition lobbies at the Capitol. So they sort of act as, you know, a statewide voice for these shelters and crisis centers. So if the nonprofit had to dissolve Oklahoma, uh, would lose all of those services, and they would be the only state without a coalition in the country. And what makes that kind of organization, uh, all the states have one, what makes them so important? Well, specifically in Oklahoma, we have the nation's second highest rate of women murdered by men. That's a report that comes out annually. And our rate is twice the national average. So this is a significant problem for Oklahoma, more so than a lot of other states. And a state report that's done every year, it found that 118 Oklahomans were killed in domestic violence incidents in 2021. So that's the same year that the former director was fired for that misspending. In other words, there are a lot of victims in Oklahoma that need this kind of help that would be without it. All right. What happens next? Well, the federal agency that they've been working with is sending this new dollar amount, the $585,000, back to the Department of Justice. That's who did the initial audit. So they will determine if there are any consequences for the nonprofit, like repaying that amount, uh, repaying part of that amount, or essentially whatever else they decide the consequence should be. And there's really no timeline for this. At the board meeting that I went to, a board member said they have not been given any sort of timeline and that they're essentially just waiting for a call at this point. All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. Uh, You can read all of Whitney's coverage about this nonprofit as well as abuse victims and other vulnerable populations in Oklahoma at our website, oklahomawatch.org. Lionel Ramos covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. He recently wrote a story about the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978 and what could happen if the law is overturned in the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Burkine versus Hayland. Lionel, tell us about that Supreme Court case. What's that all about? It was brought on by a Texas family that adopted a Navajo kid, uh, but they felt discriminated against because the Indian Child Welfare Act is meant to keep uh, Native children with their families and tribes. Those that are in the foster care system are getting ready to be adopted. Uh, There are also three states that signed on as plaintiffs, Texas, Louisiana, and Indiana. And they're basically making the state's rights argument that child welfare is to be managed solely by state legislatures, and therefore federal government, Congress should stay out of that. Now, uh, about the Indian Child Welfare Act, uh, that's something that clearly was constructed for the benefit of uh, tribes and tribal members, right? How how can that be now construed as racist? Well, the act is meant, like I said, to keep Indian children with their families and tribes. And it does that by establishing these placement priorities for foster and adoptive kids. Uh, the first is the immediate family, including non-natives. Uh, The second is a family of the tribe that the child is eligible to enroll in. And the third is another family in another tribe besides the one that the child would enroll in. And what is basically being said by this family, the Brackeens, is that they're being discriminated against because they are not native and therefore being put in this kind of obscure fourth placement priority category um, that excludes them from having 
basically the first call to to whatever kid they want to adopt that might be native. Now, what are tribes saying about the issue? So the tribes are saying that this is not a question of race. Uh, they're, they're saying that uh, being a member of a tribe or being eligible to enroll in a tribe as a kid uh, is a political distinction. It's because tribes are sovereign nations and they have the purview to govern over their own people. So their people should stay within their nations. That's the essence of their argument. And what's at risk here? If you talk to the tribes, the main thing that they've been telling me is that there is a kind of an existential risk to their sovereignty, if you will. Um, this race-based argument in their mind is unfounded because of the treaty trust relationships that native nations have with the United States federal government. And in the way they, they see it, if this race-based argument is made, then other facets of federal Indian law that involve gaming, environmental protections, uh, hunting, things like that, will also be able to be overturned with the same argument. Now, are there uh, other cases with similar questions? Yes, there. there's one that uh, the most recent is last year where there was a, a case filed out of the state of Washington um, by a gambling company, Maverick Gaming versus the United States. And they are making really the exact argument that the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act discriminates based on race and creates a, uh, a monopoly that tribes are in charge of over gambling. Now, if the Indian Child Welfare Act were to be overturned by the Supreme Court, how would that affect life here in Oklahoma? The effect, it depends on what we're talking about. So if you're talking about the the children that are in adopted or in foster care that are getting ready to be adoptive, adopted, excuse me, they will be able to be adopted by anyone. These placement priorities will no longer be considered. And so, you know, the average white family could adopt a native child and that just would happen. Um, the, I guess, more long-term results, the ones that the tribes are, are fearing the most, um, are these lawsuits that would take place making this race-based argument over other federal laws. And that's important because native kids get adopted by white families all the time, by families that are of other races as well. Um, but they go through these extra layers of, of scrutiny, if you will, before that before that final decision is made. If this law is overturned, that scrutiny would be removed and the argument could be made in other cases. Right, now, uh, Oklahoma has its own version of the Indian Child Welfare Act, and uh, as do a number of other states. And, and when this case came before the Supreme Court, several states that did not have a state version of the act scrambled this year to get one in place. Uh, how does our state law factor into this equation? The law that the that Oklahoma passed uh, only a few years after the, the 1978 Federal Act um, really works to just clarify the federal language and to make sure that it's enforced at the state level. It doesn't actually codify it word for word in our in our statutes. So what that means is that if this federal act is overturned for violating the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, the Equal Protection Clause, then our state act is at risk as well, as well as the, uh, the rest of the, the acts that have been passed in other states. All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. You can read uh, all of Lionel's coverage about the fate of the Indian Child Welfare Act and the potential outfall from that at our website, oklahomawatch.org. 
You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.